Section 15 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. Later Years of William in Normandy, 1053 to 1063. William, warned by the experience of his own early life, had for some time been eager to find a wife who should bear him an heir. This was not of more importance to William than to Normandy itself. There was indeed no illegitimate son to succeed his father or to dispute the claim with a legitimate son, for William, in a profligate age, was severely pure. But the absence of a lawful heir meant nothing but a repetition of anarchy at his death. His choice had fallen on Matilda, daughter of Baldwin de Lille, Count of Flanders, and a better choice could not have been made. The Counts of Flanders assumed at that time almost a princely position. They could count among their ancestors on the spindle side the kings of Wessex, Italy, and Burgundy, and even claimed descent from Charles the Great himself. Their position as Counts of the borderland between France and Germany, stretching from Calais almost to the Rhine, made them peers of the Empire and of France, and assured them a most important position in either country. To William, the alliance of Flanders, divided as it was from Normandy only by the narrow strip of Pontieu and Boulogne, would be most valuable, and the direct descent of Matilda on the mother's side from Alfred of England himself might be thought to add to William's future claim on England. The Duke's interest clearly pointed to the marriage, and this, as well as his genuine love for Matilda, must explain the tenacity with which he clung to it. One obstacle, however, stood in his way. The Pope, on some grounds of consanguinity, forbade the marriage. It is not clear what these grounds were, but the prerogative claimed by the Pope in such matters was very wide, and it was on the whole accepted by the moral consent of Europe. William, however, would not be thwarted, and after a fruitless attempt to gain the papal dispensation, in 1053 he wedded his bride in the teeth of papal threats. Then, however, an unlooked-for opponent arose. Lanfranc, prior of Beck, denounced the marriage. This was the first introduction of William to one whose future history is so closely woven with his own. William, irritated at this new-found opponent, ordered the granges of the abbey to be fired, and Lanfranc to quit the duchy. But here the wit of Lanfranc stood him in good stead. Overtaken by the duke on a lame horse, he bade him see how implicitly his commands were obeyed, and give me a better horse, he said, and I shall go the speedier. The duke, with a laughing reply that he was the first criminal who had dared to ask a boon of him, stopped the fugitive. Lanfranc, gained the opportunity he desired of speaking personally with the duke, promised to support his cause, and soon after obtained the papal dispensation. From that moment he became his most trusted counsellor both in church and state. We have dwelt somewhat in detail on the circumstances of this eventful marriage because it was the cause of the friendship of these two men, a friendship fraught with momentous consequences also because the marriage itself marks a definite step in William's career. By it, 
the ancient hostility between Normandy and Flanders, born of the murder of William Longsword by Count Arnulf, was fairly laid. The Duke's position was strengthened by a powerful alliance, a link was added to his claim on England, and that bond was begun between Flanders and the future conqueror of England, which was hereafter to be drawn closer by the commercial interests of the two countries and to be productive of great results in the history of our island. We have now come to an important crisis in the relations between Normandy and France. Since the days of Richard the Fearless, an alliance of the strictest kind had existed between the dukes and their overlord at Paris, an alliance founded upon mutual interests. By the help of the Capetian kings, the dukes of Normandy had risen to be the first peers of France, while to the duke of Normandy the kings of France had owed their throne and the establishment of their authority against their neighboring foes. Henry himself had gained his crown against his brother Robert, chiefly through the influence of Robert the Devil, and hitherto, except for a brief period during the minority of the duke, had requited that assistance by supporting William. But now their interests were split, and henceforth this friendship is changed for the most bitter hostility. The reason is not far to seek. The Duke of Normandy had become too powerful. Master of a rich and fertile country running from the county of Pontieu to the confines of Brittany, and from the sea to the very gates of Paris, they held the keys of royal France. They shut the king out from all hopes of advancing to the seacoast, and commanded the mouth of the Seine River on which Paris stood. They were overlords of Brittany and closely allied by ties of marriage with that country as well as with Flanders and Pontieu. Even in later days, when the kings of Paris ruled over most of the present France, Normandy, in wealth and importance, though not in extent, formed a third part of the kingdom in which it was merged. From this we may judge of the overwhelming power of the duchy, when the royal domains were confined to a narrow strip, running from the Somme to the Loire, when the district south of that hardly acknowledged the king's supremacy at all, and when the counts of Flanders and Anjou and the dukes of Burgundy were scarcely less powerful than their suzerain himself. If the royal power were ever to increase, the Duke of Normandy must be humbled. So argued Henry, and forgetting in present necessity the benefits heaped upon his race by the Norman dukes, requited them by the most inveterate hostility. From this day the enmity of Normandy and France, lulled to sleep since the early days of William Longsword, began again, was transferred to England when Duke William added that kingdom to his dominions, and then, taking the form of national antagonism, lasted on with hardly a break till the end of the fifteenth century. Bent thus upon humbling the dreaded power of Normandy, Henry is found supporting against the Duke the rebellions, which now and again break forth, and joining in 1054 in the dangerous coalition which the jealousy of neighboring princes raised against him. The movement extended from Ducal Burgundy to the foot of the Pyrenees. The Count of Pontieux, Theobald III of Blois, even the Duke of Aquitaine and the Count of Poitiers, who hitherto had rarely crossed the Loire, 
joined King Henry against the bastard upstart. This mighty host was divided into two detachments. One under Odo, King Henry's brother, was to attack Normandy from the north by way of Beauvais and to advance on Rouen. The other under the king himself assembled at Mantes and was to march on Lisieux and the sea. Thus surrounded by his foes, the bastard might, they hoped, be utterly crushed or driven to the west. There, shorn of his eastern dominions, the flower of his ducal coronet, he might be suffered to retain the districts of the Bessin and the Cotentin, while the old grant of Charles the Simple should be restored to the successors of his throne, and Normandy, thus humbled, would no longer endanger the growing power of the king. Their hopes were soon rudely to be overthrown by the strategy of Duke William. Advancing himself against the king, he held the royal forces in check as they crossed the border to the south. Meanwhile, his forces, massed under his most trusty leaders, marched against Odo, surprised him in the town of Mortemer, 1054, and cut his contingent to pieces. A messenger dispatched by the duke to the king rudely awakened him from his slumbers in the gray morning with the cry, Up, up, Frenchman, ye sleep too long. Go bury your friends that lie dead at Mortemer. A panic seized the royal forces, and Normandy was evacuated without a blow being struck against the duke himself. Awed by William's superior strategy, which hitherto he had had no opportunity of displaying, the coalition melted away, and William, after showing great leniency to his captive foes, enjoyed three years of peace from 1055 to 1058, which he devoted to the government of his country and the reform of ecclesiastical abuses. The peace of three years was soon over. A new coalition now arose against the duke, in which a new enemy appears, Geoffrey of Anjou. The Counts of Anjou, one day to ascend the throne of England and gain the realm which Normandy had won, can be traced back to the ninth century, when Charles the Bald granted a dominion to Ingelgaer, a Breton woodman, first count. For a century, however, they bear no very important part in French affairs. Their district was a small one, marked out by no strong natural boundaries, and at the end of the 10th century they were entirely overshadowed by the power of their neighbors, the Counts of Blois and Champagne. With the accession of Falknera the Black, 987 to 1040, their destinies began to rise. Under this powerful count we first see that type of character displayed which henceforth so strongly marked his race, to the cool-headed and clear-sighted qualities of a consummate general, he added a power of organization, a faculty of statesmanship, and an unscrupulousness in the choice of means, which soon raised Anjou into one of the most important powers in France, and which, coupled as they were with the most savage cruelty, made his name the terror of those days. His long reign is a series of triumphs. Brittany was defeated under Conan in 992. Eude de Blois was humbled at Pont-Levoix in 1016. His dominions were extended to the south by the seizure of Saumur and the conquest of Touraine. He had interfered in the affairs of France at the death of Robert, 
unsuccessfully supporting Queen Constance and her second son Robert against King Henry. On his death, he handed on Anjou, its borders extended, its powers consolidated, to his son, Geoffrey Martel the Hammer, a man hardly his inferior. Continuing his father's policy, Geoffrey Martel, 1040-1060, had wrested the city of Tours, the last city of Touraine which remained to them, from the house of Blois in 1044, and his aggression had brought upon him the united forces of Normandy and France, then allies. With the exception of this short quarrel, Normandy and Anjou had rarely come into contact. Their dominions nowhere touched each other, but between them lay the county of Men, the possession of which they both desired, and which henceforth forms a constant source of dispute. The claims of William to the county were founded upon the gift of Charles the Simple to Rollo. This claim, however, had been little more than nominal, and was now disputed by Geoffrey as guardian of Hugh, the young Count of Men. This probably had been the motive of Geoffrey in supporting the rebels of Alençon in the early days of William, a quarrel which led to the occupation by William of the castle of Donfront in 1048 on the soil of Men, important as commanding the valley of Mayenne to the west of the northern frontier, and that of Ambrière on the Varenne hard by. Since that time, Geoffrey had in vain endeavored to regain these castles, and now he eagerly embraced the opportunity of humbling his powerful rival and joined the King of France. United by their hostility to the common foe, they concerted a joint invasion of the duchy in 1058. Entering from the county of Hiem, they advanced on Bayeux, ravaging as they went. Then, turning to the southeast, they advanced on Caen, which was sacked. They now intended to cross the Dive and harry the rich district of Lycia to the east. Meanwhile, William, entrenching himself in his own castle of Falaise, had coolly waited his opportunity, determined to attack them as they returned, gorged with spoil, their discipline relaxed by success. The hour had now arrived. Rapidly marching from Falaise, he came upon them just as they were crossing the Dive. The king with the vanguard had already passed the stream and ascended the heights which overlook the Dive on the west bank. The rest were threading their way along a narrow causeway which led across low and marshy lands on the left bank. The tide was rising, and the ford would soon become impassable. This was the moment chosen by William for his attack, and the result was decisive. Huddled together in the narrow causeway, swept by the Norman arrows which we find here first mentioned, the main body of the army was annihilated. While Henry, prevented by the tide which now had risen from sending aid, looked on in helpless rage from the heights beyond at the ruin of his army. This decisive victory, in which again the strategy of the duke had been preeminently displayed, ended the war. Peace was made, and two years afterwards both his enemies were removed by death in 1060. Henry left his son Philip under the guardianship of the Count of Flanders, his brother-in-law, father-in-law and trusty ally of William. Geoffrey's dominions were divided by his nephews, Geoffrey and Folk Rechin, Anjou and Saintonge falling to the former, 
to the latter the city and county of Tours. A short respite from war ensued of three years' duration, 1060 to 1063. During that time we find William crushing out the remaining seeds of rebellion, banishing turbulent nobles, and sternly repressing all who opposed his will. This is the date of the famous ordinance of the Curfew Bell, 1061, issued at the Synod of Caen. By this a bell was to be rung at evening when prayer should be offered, and all people should get themselves within and shut their doors. It was no doubt resorted to as a system of police, to secure the quiet of the country, and was subsequently introduced by William into England. Normandy was then at rest, not so the busy duke. The county of men had, as we have seen, long been an object of desire, and now in 1063 opportunity offered to establish his authority there and turn the vague grant of Rollo into possession. We last left men in the hands of the young Count Hugh under the guardianship of Geoffrey. Hugh died prematurely in 1051, and Geoffrey had occupied Le Mans and driven out the widow and children of Hugh. But on the death of Geoffrey, Herbert, the son of Hugh, had appealed to William. He then commended himself to the duke, offered to hold men as a Norman fief, and giving his sister Margaret in betrothal to Robert, William's eldest son, promised him the succession if he himself should die childless. Two years afterwards, in 1063, Herbert died, and forthwith William claimed the fulfillment of the compact. The House of Anjou no longer disputed his title, but within the county the people refused to accept the Norman duke and asserted the rights of Walter Mont, the uncle by marriage of the late Count Herbert. His claim had no support but the wishes of the people. Three daughters of whom Margaret was one were still alive, and their title at least was better than that of Walter. Notwithstanding this, the dread of the Norman duke raised a formidable party, and war became inevitable if William did not mean to be balked of his prey. Neglecting the city of Le Mans, William ravaged the rest of the county, and by the terror which his cruelty inspired, forced William to surrender the city and withdraw his claim. Thus robbed of their leader, men submitted. Walter and his wife soon after died, some said poisoned by the duke, and men at last was added to the ducal coronet. The conquest of men completes the history of William in Normandy. Important as that acquisition was in itself, it is more important as forming a prelude to the conquest of England on which our attention now centers. End of section 15